0: Everything is absurd. That's what I love about it. You know, when you're thinking about this idea that we are all essentially quite meaningless, scrabbling through life that will probably not make the history books, you know, none of us in Napoleon, there's an absurdity to how we take such pride in such tiny expressions of who we are.
1: You're listening to Doing It Right with me, Pandora Sykes, a podcast where I talk to experts about the myths, anxieties, trivialities, and trends of modern life. There's no such thing as the right life, but what might we be getting wrong? In this series, I'll be exploring outrage culture, arrival fallacy, and the perils of instant gratification, and lobbing some pretty big questions at my guests, like, why do human beings find change so hard? What would a more inclusive society look like? And what is the difference between optimism and hope? This is a podcast that looks at the little things and the big things and asks, what can we do to live life better? Not just for ourselves, but for everyone. Raven Smith is a journalist, author, and probably the funniest man you know on Instagram. A columnist for British Vogue and the author of an essay collection, Trivial Pursuits, a linguistic acid trip of a book which moves deftly from IKEA meatballs and the contents of his fridge to growing up in a single parent household and coming out, he is one of those rare beasts who can write about the trivial and the profound with even hand. I spoke to Raven in May when we were all very much under lock and key. We talk about wellness, arrival fallacy, torso culture and why trivialities make a good life.
0: I love going out, I love going for martinis, all this stuff that is ultimately you know, trivial and, and meaningless in the grand scheme of civilization. But I also think it does protect you, in, these enjoyment in the small things protect you from this constant existential crisis about your limited time on the planet, about genuine disasters and war. And I, I think that balance gives you some sanity in this kind of, in the chaos.
1: Do you think trivialities is how we construct ourselves? I mean, you wrote a whole book about the pursuit of trivialities and even the the name trivialities insinuates that they're not that important. Would you disagree with that?
0: You can't have a life without, you know, knives and forks and plates and you inevitably make a decision on what those will be in front of you. Um, And I think that that decision is based on a whole host of different things. And I, I think there are no small things in a way. Everything is important to the subjectively important to you. Um, and I can, I, you know, there are things. It's really it's not difficult, but I think we can brush aside the small stuff, whereas that is actually the, you know, in the patchwork of who we are. It, it makes up most of it.
1: I don't think a life can be made or broken with trivialities but i think it would be quite hard to have a contented life without them
0: i think people want to brush aside what they think is small uh, there's a lot of you know especially during the pandemic there's a lot of chatter about whenever anyone says something it's minimized because there's a there's a because there's a pandemic and i i recognize the pandemic is real but we're still having small stuff around us managing those day to day
1: as an observer of such things in your weekly column for British Vogue which i love what are some of the key absurdities of modern life for you
0: everything is absurd that's what i love about it you know when you're thinking about this idea that we are all essentially quite meaningless scrabbling through life that will probably not make the history books you know none of us in napoleon there's an absurdity to how we take such pride in such tiny expressions of who we are. I'm just find it so interesting the way people operate. I just find it endlessly fascinating this idea of who you are as a normal person, who you are as a as a Z-list celebrity, who you are as a as a global megastar. You know this this whole dance that humanity does around each other, how we hold each other up.
1: I think none of us a Napoleon is the most damning and sobering <laughs> summarization of the last 10 years, or just the last forever.
0: I, th- I think we are all, we're all the Napoleons of our own leaves. Is it Waterloo? But I, you know, <laughs> there is a... <laughs> My whole MO as a writer and as how I operate on this planet is to be as honest as I can be. Um, and at times that's brutal and people find that really hard, but I also think it's refreshing. And I often find if I'm a tool in a knot when I'm writing, I just have to dig as deep to what the actual truth is rather than try and say something that is profound or interesting or witty.
1: There's something gloriously take me as I am about your writing. Does it stem at all from being a bit of a lone wolf? You mentioned earlier that you are an only child and you write quite boldly. And I found very moving, actually, about having no friends when you were younger. You said it's a closed chapter that you Mm. don't like to reread a dip like a car radio going through a tunnel. How much does that inform who you are now or, or the way that you write
0: Oh, good question. Having no friends is never great, but I just, I honestly, there's something about me. I'm not an eternal optimist. I'm quite sort of engaged and critical of what is going on and constantly in touch with my feelings, which I think most good writers are like that anyway. But um, there's a level at which I don't look back at anything in my life unfondly. So I would say, looking back on not having any mates when I was fourteen, I must have been so depressed. You know what's interesting? My editor, when I wrote that, it was one line: "I had no friends." Yada yada yada, and she was like, "You just can't walk away from saying that." For someone who presents, it's a truth bomb. So, <laughs> yeah, she was like, "As someone who presents so gregariously and is, you know, always up for a giggle, to say that you had no friends and then move on to coming out, just you can't just walk away." And so. And trying to interrogate it, it must have been rubbish, but I just remember it as being time inside my own head, which essentially is my job now.
1: It's still unusual, and I think this is one of the reasons why your voice is so important and stands out so much, to read about marriage and parenthood through the gay gaze. On future fatherhood and what that process will look like for you, you write that it will either be non-viable embryos and soaring heartache and hand-wringing until you're holding a tiny sprog in your hand or adoption where we'll get a five-year-old with a name chosen by someone else. But a schoolgirl called Janet is a pretty sweet deal and there's always time to shoehorn a nickname onto her.
0: (laughs) You can't be what you can't see, right? And I think projecting a happy gay marriage and cracking on with it and also being honest with how difficult it is to share a life with anybody, just being honest about it. And I think that is my representation. And I think I hope people see that. And they don't need me to keep saying me and my white husband, and I'm also a black person. Marriage comes with so many ingrained assumptions from, you know, fairy tales that you read when you're a kid up until today. And I think my impression or my experience with the women in my life is that they have been asked about their wedding day and thought of their wedding day since they were tiny. And there is also a level where Richard and I had never thought about what we would be wearing on our wedding day. I mean, it's just like, we, we you know, the first line of my speech, which was very short, was like, my, you know, Richard and I have always been very sure what our marriage would be, but we had not a single fucking clue what our wedding would be. And I think for us, it was always kind of, it's just an agreement. And that sounds so pragmatic, but I think marriage in a way has to be quite pragmatic, but it's an agreement that whatever is around the corner, we will embrace it together. And that sounds both grandiose and simple, that one. It's like, we'll just do it together. Whatever comes next, we're a team in it. And I think that's not full of, disappointment really unless one of you fucks that up because of the way that our family will be grown there is this inevitable kind of patch where you are not you're we agreed maybe three years ago we were ready to be parents so it's a much that's not something that We put the wheels in motion a long time ago. So I think there is a a level of feeling like you're treading water. I think the goal for gay men is we expect it. You know, we we, we are expecting to not have this happen immediately.
1: I was reading something recently where someone described it as the waiting room of parenthood when you're going through surrogacy or adopting, you're in this liminal space. Would you describe it as that? Yeah.
0: Uh, Yeah, uh, 100%. I talked to my therapist about this a lot I think I could just came to this realization so after a lot of like we're ready to have kids and that takes a lot of discussion and existential crises and worrying about the planet and all of that stuff um, to get to that point and then realize you've got four years in that kind of waiting space at times has been incredibly hard and incredibly depressing and incredibly kind of right at the forefront of my mind, like really surging up this, like, I want to have a kid and I'm ready, but the planet is not, you know, something out there is not able to deliver that to me. This is very, very, very fraught. And it's really died down in that realization that being a dad is not necessarily about, it's a way of being, you know, preparing yourself mentally to have kids as much as kids clearly throw a lot of debris on that track <laughs> I realize in theory it's it's like I'm just gonna be great and I'll probably help them learn guitar but there's a level at which being a dad is a, is a way of being and I can still be that way without necessarily having any kids yet and I, I think I was getting frustrated about being like listening more and being my best self because I felt like oh it's just pouring back into me and this is frustrating for me because I'm actually ready to give it to someone who needs it more than I am serving myself so I think there's a there's a level at which in the waiting room I've become re- resigned uh, not resigned but like I am able to just be in it rather than be like where's that train where's that train where's that train which is what it was manically feeling like that for, for quite a spell in the middle
1: This episode of Doing It Right is sponsored by Spotlight Oral Care. Harm-free oral healthcare created by two dentist sister founders, Dr Lisa and Dr Vanessa Creven, Spotlight Oral Care is a toxin-free, palm oil-free dental range that you can trust. I shudder when I hear the words teeth whitening because they remind me of some strips I tried 10 years ago that made my teeth so sensitive that even biting into an apple would make me cry for about six months. But Spotlight Oral Care's teeth whitening system is a different kettle of teeth, created specifically for no sensitivity and no damage to the enamel, so you don't need to avoid icy drinks or cool breezes. Hallelujah! The teeth whitening system is their most popular product and is super easy to use. Place the strips on your teeth for one hour every day for 14 days and the low dose of hydrogen peroxide gets to work gently removing all the dreaded red wine and coffee stains like magic. Another hero product is their Sonic Toothbrush. It's my first ever electric toothbrush, granted, I have nothing to compare it to, but I'm absolutely besotted with it. An electric toothbrush is proven to be so much more effective at removing plaque and stains than a manual toothbrush, and the Sonic gives you that dentist clean feeling every day. It comes with three heads as well as a protective case to hygienically store your brush when travelling for 25% off all products use the code doing it right 25 at uk.spotlightoralcare.com you also write a lot about social media do you ever tire of it as a medium
0: i embrace the the anxieties of social media they don't I, but i do recognize if I've spent too long on it, it's not an experience watching people have experiences. it, 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 it It's actually quite limiting. But we've
1: made it. We've made an experience, haven't we? Look at Gogglebox. Mm. That is all based on the experience yeah. of watching oh, other people I love have an experience. Googlebox. So do I. So do I. But I'm interested in why we love it. Why do we love watching someone else have an experience?
0: The thing about Gogglebox is you are, you're watching yourself watching... TV. I think the, the the thing is with social media is we just it's such a transference of packaging an experience into an expression. And I think we we I don't even think we're completely uh, uh, like complicit in it anymore. I don't think there's like a thought process that goes behind seeing something and then inserting ourselves into it in some way and broadcasting that out. And I think you know all of this shaming of people doing selfies uh, at war sites and sites of great atrocity i don't think i think we just instantly convert we're not that 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 process of thinking i should put my face in this lovely in the grand canyon i really don't think people are thinking about it like that it just it just becomes this extension this mindless extension of of diarizing human life that's such a good way of putting it. Um,
1: experience as expression. And mm. I agree with you. I think to see a picture of someone, you know, doing a gurning selfie at a Holocaust memorial is tasteless to see. It's really uncomfortable. But I don't think the intention is to disrespect. It's that w- we've almost got to a point where we don't know how to experience anything without expressing it.
0: Yeah, we can't stop broadcasting. It's compulsive. There's a level at which you have to kind of embed yourself in this broadcast culture that we found ourselves in where anyone on the street is basically the BBC telling you everything about their lives and turning everything into content. And I sort of have to experience that in order to take a step back and be like, everyone thinks they're the BBC.
1: There is a kind of madness to this sharing, isn't there? Turning ourselves inside out for consumption. You call it a ceremonial self-disemboweling we obviously talk about lots of the bad stuff on social media do you feel like you found a positive community with your online following
0: yeah definitely I would say that like the messages that I get the messages that I get I sound like Paris Hilton um I would say the messages that I get from people you know for me I I I try and I I try and work in I do work in a humorous way and I and that is that builds a, a sense of community you know we're all in on the joke and i think there's a you know i would like anybody who has a vaguely public facing persona i feel often that people don't quite get it that they think that i'm just bitchy and sassy but what i'm hoping to do is create this come in on the joke for all of us and there is a sense of community in that and it's definitely reflected back in the messages that i get from people now people send me funny cultural stuff like breaking news and say when are you going to caption this which is great because i don't have to think about (laughs) checking bbc news every 10 minutes
1: we get a lot of stuff sent to us by hilo listeners i'm definitely better informed for what people send me do you ever feel like you're scrabbling to keep up like just before i spoke to you i was googling a news story that only broke yesterday or even a few hours ago but I already felt a sense of shame for not keeping on top of
0: I, I think scrabbling is the is the nature of modern life I, I, it would be important <laughs> you know when you think of the amount of there's a there's a there's the the idea that between the dawn of time and the day that Jesus was born or no, wait, from I can't remember my stats, which is really annoying. But we create as much in, in digital information as there was from the dawn of time up until the day Jesus was born. There's like this whole—it's not Jesus because there's no digital content then. But there's this idea that, that I, I would think it would be impossible for anyone to keep up with what is going on in the world, and that's just like important—well, important news, things that matter. But we're also constantly being fed that we're not good enough you know that's how we are encouraged to buy stuff and to keep consuming so it's also a scrabbling to 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 be more not just absorb more and be more in you know involved and engaged but also to be taller and funnier and <laughs> more approachable you know we're constantly and, and more optim i mean optimization is obviously i don't have this strive to be fully optimized i love doing nothing that's as important to me as or as the doing of stuff but there is this level of like you i guess it comes down to like realizing that you will never um complete the game of being of having your shit together i mean it's just never going to happen so, so you almost have to realize the triviality of that endeavor that pursuit is trivial to try and be the person who is at the cutting edge of all of these cutting edges that are happening simultaneously
1: the good enough as you say is something that is preyed on by uh, wellness or consumer culture or not even preyed on it's just like a key part Mm. of the functionality is you need to buy more and you need to polish more and you need to Mm. exercise more so that you're good enough Can you see a way in which we can balance... I feel like the pandemic is making a lot of people look at how we consume and how we talk about consumption, and obviously that's going to be quite a big issue for magazines and the media. I mean, consumer magazines were designed to make us consume. Where do you see the happy medium of consumption or aspiration, but then also feeling like we're good enough? Is there a happy place?
0: I just think we being young as we are we're not ready to kind of settle into good enough we're still aspirational i wonder if my parents aren't like this and i don't know if it's generational in that they were born earlier or generational in that this you don't feel like this at 50 and 60 i just i hope it's i hope it sort of slowly ebbs away My mum thinks it's generational.
1: She doesn't think she felt like this at my age. But then my mum, my mum was a stay at home mum. Ambition was not something she ever permitted herself outside the home. So already we're operating from quite different places, I think.
0: We're constantly being delivered aspirational lives that are are not like our own.
1: I've been desperate to talk to you about torso culture which I had never heard of before and is an aspiration you recently introduced me to.
0: It's just torso 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 this kind of this idea that in the 70s and um, you know in those nascent gay culture days if you weren't pretty you ha- did not stand a chance and nowadays you just you just have to work you don't accept your lot it's part of that what nextness but there's this idea that I feel like torsos are peppering every feed. They're like rats in London. You're never more than six feet from a torso. It's crazy.
1: Do you think it started in gay culture then before it became something that is also now quite present in straight men as well? Like with, yeah. when you see kind of Love Island and what's that new one? Too Hot to Handle?
0: Too Hot to Handle. I haven't watched Too Hot to Handle, but there is this, I, I, there's this very...
1: It's diverting.
0: Yeah, and it's become this, like, new normal, but actually takes a lot of work and focus. But I just rem- you know, I remember metrosexuality, so that was, and spawn a sexual, you know, that there's that, all, you know, it's this slow bleed of the images that you're presented with every day. Whether or not you're consciously doing it, it's changing your perception of what looks good.
1: I think that's really interesting because I know more about and write more about how that impacts on women Um, Mm. but it's really interesting to hear you talk about how it impacts on men because I think the men's wellness industry is now Mm. growing at like super speed.
0: Yeah we're always a bit behind I guess you know for me it's really interesting. The thing is with wellness is I, I, uh, I feel like I'm a logical person and I Part of me is like, how much can a crystal really do for me? But at the same time, I'll very happily get like a silly facial. You talk in your book about the early days of Goop, the newsletter that makes it sound so basic. It's like yoga. it's like, well, we're all doing yoga now. You know, it's not, it's not out there to be mindful. It's just that. It, so I think th- this kind of extreme stuff will possibly become more every day.
1: It's crazy to think that 15 years ago, like, walking down the street with a rolled-up yoga mat under your arm was, it was quite revolutionary.
0: I just remember how weird it was walking past people in headphones, talking out loud. And that wasn't that long ago. Now it's weird when they're not.
1: Now people listen to, and I include myself in it, voice notes just out on the street. Just everyone hearing this voice coming out your phone, with yeah. you holding it like a sort of brick against your head. With torso culture, is there a degree of men memeing one another's bodies? I do think that happens a lot with women. If you look at how many women want to look like Kim Kardashian, for example, entire retailers are dedicated to getting her look. Is there a similar thing going on with torso culture?
0: It's, again, this constant battle of, like... Or, or this constant balance of, like, who you are and how much that is influenced by by how other people are and i just don't know when you are able to kind i just that plat is so tightly wound but your your avenues for aspiration are infinite because of the internet because you like keeping up keeping up with the Joneses. they were only ever next door and now it's like keeping up with every person on the globe with a smartphone i don't know i feel like time is passing so quickly but that's because of the speed at which we are delivered absolutely everything.
1: Mm, Totally, information overload.
0: I constantly feel like I'm running out of time. And when I speak to my parents, they don't feel like that. And objectively, they have less time. I'm like, I'm running out of time to achieve all these things that I don't even know what they are. I haven't decided what they're gonna be. Maybe it's this part of this optimization of feeling- And being
1: addled by choice.
0: You know, for a long time, I I was worried that I lived in the future and that everything that was happening to me was just irrelevant because I was trying to get myself to this next phase, this next phase. And I think that's calmed down a lot more in terms of being... If you've lived too much in the future, as I felt like I was doing, you end up not celebrating a single thing you achieve because you just move on to the next thing. So I've been working on or trying to actually say what i have achieved out loud and hold on to it oh do you know what there's there's absolutely nothing about where i find myself now that i wish that i would change so I, oh that's I hard- really nice i feel like your 20s you you know the dicking about was the whole was like fortifying it was good for me you know i i didn't i, I don't want to be like a ceo at 25. i was glad to be pouring pints for people and staying up too late I was very happy doing that. And sure, it, you know, it was it, it. doesn't now feel like a waste of time. But I think there's other people I know from the same time that still party too much, you know, that, that haven't come out of that. And I, I sort of get that that would... Maybe I would want to go back if I felt like I wasn't... That if I If I felt like I was still the same, then it's the time again. But I think I've achieved and experienced, you know, better stuff.
1: It does feel quite mental looking at people who are... 15 years younger than us, and now their aspiration is to be like Kylie Jenner and have a business by the age of 21. Yeah. And I did not have my shit together at 21. No. I mean, I don't know if I've really got my shit together at 33, but still. No, but,
0: but there's a level at which it's like, you're, like, there has to be some exploration of what you might want.
1: Napoleon of Waterloo, thank you so much, Raven Smith, for cheering my day and coming on Doing It Right.
0: You're more than welcome. Thanks for having me.
1: If you enjoyed this episode of Doing It Right, please do subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast platform so that you can enjoy more episodes out every Monday.